This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Getting to the other side of the pandemic, we know not a straight line. Reminded once again of that. On the plus side, we heard that new coronavirus cases dropped 95% in New York City since uh, the vaccine was rolled out. And then on the negative side, COVID-19 infections are rising across much of the UK, so putting a lot of pressure on the Prime Minister there, Boris Johnson, as he weighs whether to delay plans to unlock the economy uh, later on this month. So joining us, as he does every week, Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU Lango, and he's back with us on the phone in New York. Ian, nice to have you back with us. How are you? Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, doing very well. Happy Friday. Hope all is well with uh, you guys over at the studio. Yeah, we're doing well, and it does feel like things are, you know, getting increasingly back to quote-unquote normal as more people come back to work the city masks you know taking off um how is it on your end in and around the hospital we're really seeing a dramatic decline exactly as the numbers show the uh, uh the incidence in uh, new york has really dropped below you know one percent like 0.75 percent in that range uh they're really literally a handful or less of covid patients in the hospital so we are still seeing um, COVID cases much less. There are still some hospitalizations, but a dramatic improvement from a year ago. And I think part of that is due to widespread uh, vaccinations as well as some herd immunity from people who've had the disease itself. So I think overall the Northeast is doing better. New York is doing well. And I think nationally we're seeing a big drop. You know, in cases, obviously, there are still some holdouts and vaccine hesitancy, you know, which we do need to address when people are trying to address dress with you know, lotteries and raffles and million-dollar giveaways. I'm not quite sure that's the message we want to send, considering the rest of the world, you know, is really desperately in need of vaccines. But, uh, you know, that's what's happening. Well, and, you know, we had an interesting story on the Bloomberg. It was one of our big takes, and it just says how, you know, as COVID-19 cases in the U.S. and Europe drop and vaccines become more plentiful there, the COVAX program to boost inoculations in poor countries is still kind of scrounging around for doses. And basically the bottom line on this is that the pandemic is global and then the solution has to be global, that until we really eradicate it from most of the world, we're still all facing a pandemic and possible risks. A hundred percent. And that may be why we're seeing a slight uptick uh, in the UK. It's hard to know. Um, You know, they vaccinated about 75 percent of their adult population with one vaccine. Mm -hmm. You know, they're working on their second vaccine. Um, But they also seem to have uh, a fair amount of the Indian, you know, variant, that triple mutant, um, hybrid uh, mutant. And so that is a concern. And I think that is a message that we really do need to get global vaccines or we do risk more replication of the virus, higher risk of mutations. So far, it appears that most of the mutations um, are blocked by the current vaccines, but there is always a risk as it mutates uh, where the vaccines will be less effective, and that would be very unfortunate. What are the conversations that you guys have around kind of what's next? I mean, is it 100% that we'll have another virus that's going to impact us like coronavirus, COVID-19 did? 
You know, I think um, pandemics occur. You know, obviously, in 1918, uh, it was influenza, H1N1. Uh, there was no talk of lab leaks or genetically engineered viruses. But, uh, you know, there's always uh, a risk with, um, you know, research labs and, and uh, uh, animal-to-human transmission mm-hmm. or research in labs. You know, there's always a risk of problems arising, so we're certainly not out of the woods. But I do think the mRNA vaccine, that rapid response um, is great to be able to develop it quickly. We were very lucky that these vaccines happened to work against the spike protein. Uh, That would have been a very bad situation if you develop antibodies, and that wasn't the key way to to block the virus. Uh, So we were really lucky this time. We need to learn um, more about sort of this process. And also, we're still a long way from getting uh, the world vaccinated due to poor countries. And there's really a question, should we be uh, enticing people with vaccines and spending money when really the rest of the world desperately needs vaccines? Right. It does wonder, well, you know, there's, you're right, there's a lot of things being written right now about you know, we are, we're such in a push in the developed world to just get everybody, including kids and so on and so forth, vaccinated, whether or not we needed to kind of spread the wealth when it comes to vaccines and really get to some of the more uh, at-risk populations globally before kind of getting to those maybe not as risk, uh, at risk in, in the developed world. But it's, I guess it's a hard thing to manage. Yeah, no, I'm glad we're having the discussion. I do think that once we've been uh, reach herd immunity here, we definitely, any excess should definitely be distributed to the rest of the world and make an effort for, for problem zones. Uh, we do have a little bit of a lead time to, to get those out. Right. I think we've made good progress. We need to figure out positive ways to incentivize the vaccine holdouts. I'm not sure offering them money or free beer is exactly <laughs> the right way to do it, but... Um, it's, 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 it's one approach. Who'd have thunk? Hey, just got about 30 seconds left here. Um, how busy are your offices of people just coming in for routine things? I've been trying to schedule some things and they're like, listen, I can't give you an appointment for six or eight weeks because everybody's coming back. Yes. So that's the good news is that people are coming back for screening, skin cancer screening, colonoscopy for colon cancer screening, uh, prostate cholesterol screening. There's been a big surge. The offices are really very full. And I think that that's a good sign that people are getting back to health maintenance, which is important. You don't want to miss other abnormalities. There's been a delay in diagnosing of many cancers and other issues because of COVID. Hopefully we're going to catch up with that. Right. And delays can make a difference in the outcomes. Hey, um, thank you so much. Dr. Ian Lospader, have a great weekend. Clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center joining us on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the Bloomberg Big Take. It's the Bloomberg exclusive that is also among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today. It's a story you've got to know about, about how China beat the U.S. to become the world's undisputed solar champion. It gets to the heart of how we got here. And that's what the story digs into. Let's get more from Bloomberg News energy and environmental policy reporter Jennifer Deloey. She is with us on the phone in Washington, D.C. Um, Jen, good to have you here with us. So this story just lays it out because I feel like we often do a solar story and we're like, China wins, China wins. This gets into how it got there. So tell us how China just got so much ahead of the United States, because the U.S. certainly put policies in place to be a leader. 
Right. I mean, U.S. politicians and presidents talked a good game about growing a domestic solar energy industry, and, and they did put in some supportive policies. But when it came to solar panel manufacturing, they really forfeited the fight. You know, China made dominating the solar supply chain a huge priority, uh, you know, and used almost every tool at its disposal to nurture their domestic solar manufacturing sector. So we're talking generous subsidies, cheap land, uh, you know, mandated demand. Uh, the factories also could benefit from cheap coal-fired power. Uh, and they were able to take advantage of that, these Chinese factories, as they improved efficiency and reduced costs. Uh, you know, making their products more competitive uh, against what was coming out of the U.S. Uh, and by contrast, you know, uh, the U.S. really just dabbled in this area. There were short-lived policy incentives and, and punishing trade barriers, but not the kind of big sustained federal support that China was using or uh, that arguably is really needed to win a new uh, industry like this. And it worked. And your story includes all the data points that point to it. Chinese firms now supply three quarters of the world's solar panels. U.S. companies 20 years ago made 22 percent of them now produce just one percent on American soil. Um, you know, it's just fascinating. And and you point out in your story, um, Jen, that it was China creating supply as well as demand. They covered both ends. Right, absolutely. And what's interesting about that is, is that the U.S. has really focused on the demand side of the equation. I mean, one upside of cheap imported solar panels for the U.S. is that it has helped propel the deployment of solar power. And, you know, in, in my reporting, I talked with countless analysts and, and folks in the field who, who basically felt that's where the federal government's focus was really on. Uh, you know, the U.S. really liked those cheap panels and, and, and how it helped us uh, get on track uh, toward achieving some of our renewable power goals. So, you know, now the U.S. has, has nearly a 100 gigawatts of, of solar power capacity uh, built out, and uh, and there are big solar jobs in the U.S. They're just not in manufacturing. So we helped with the uh, demand supply of that equation, right, in, in a big <laughs> way. Well, what about, you know, you know, we've done so much reporting on cheaper labor in China. Um, what else beyond, or was it really government policy just saying we're on an initiative? And really, President Xi, right, who is looking to, and we know in a much bigger, broader way, become a manufacturing um, superpower. That's where he was, I guess, at that point. Now he's looking to kind of evolve some of those more sophisticated industry. But he was really on a mission. Uh, no question about it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, what well, a bit of a surprise, perhaps to some analysts, to some degree, discounted the impact of uh, cheap labor on this mm -hmm. and really pointed to some other input costs like uh, cheap uh, power from coal plants uh, in driving this. But of course, the incentives as well. Hey, listen, just got 30 seconds really quickly. Can the U.S. turn things around? Can they catch up? Maybe not on solar. There are opportunities for innovation. But what I kept hearing uh, folks talk about is we can we can quarter the next market. We can really push hard on EVs, that that's the next big opportunity for the U.S. Right. But we know China's going big on that as well. Hey, Jen, great story. Thank you so much, Jen DeLowey. She's energy and environmental policy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Washington, D.C. Again, it's the Bloomberg Big Take story about how China beat the United States to become the world's undisputed solar champion. It just goes step by step in terms of policies, what China did, as you just heard from Jen, but also from the United States. And she talked about really the advantage of China attacking it both on a supply and demand uh, angle. And that really gave them a big advantage. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right. Well, day doesn't seem to go by without us talking about the meme stock of the day from Hertz to GameStop to AMC, which has been all on our minds the last week and a half, two weeks or so. Great story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's about how AMC became the people's stock by not being a GameStop remake. Let's get more on this story. Bloomberg News high yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter Kat Doherty on the phone from Boston along with uh, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. Not all meme stocks are the same, Joel. Yeah, and, and there's one that's been just totally on fire, obviously, this week, and that's AMC. And when we were thinking about um, what an interesting take on it would be, um, Kat and her uh, co-author, Brandon Kuchkoden, kind of hit on something that I thought was, was particularly interesting, which is actually it's almost like AMC learned from GameStop <laughs> in real time from earlier this year and was able to sort of have a slightly different response that might make a world of difference for them. Uh, so, Kat, talk to us about that. What, what's different about this meme stock than, uh, you know, the, the mania that we saw earlier this year? So there's two main differences that we point out in our piece. The first is the company AMC leaning into uh, the enthusiasm from all of its investors and from the, the Reddit crowd that is out there um, and making trends on Twitter and hashtags AMC Army. They're communicating directly with those people, and they're offering perks like free large popcorns in a movie when you sign up and you are an investor with AMC. We saw the exact opposite with GameStop when its shares were surging and it was trending online and on social media. Management didn't acknowledge or communicate with that crowd in the same way. Now, what AMC has done is it's taken that enthusiasm and it's issued new shares this week. And every time that it's doing that, sure, it's diluting the existing shareholders, but for everyone involved, for all shareholders um, and debt holders, that means more cash on the balance sheet. And this is a company that has deferred rent payments coming due. They do have very high coupon payments on their debt. So when the interest payments are coming. They need cash to pay that. And so every time that they have announced these equity sales uh, or issuing new shares, that is just more cash that the company can use and and prosper into the future. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. First of all, I can't imagine like a company going to a big institutional investor or pension fund saying, hey, we're going to throw some popcorn your way or something like it just wouldn't work. But it's different. This kind of retail investor militia um, cat that's out there. And it is interesting to see the CEO kind of playing to them directly. Exactly. Um, we, in our story, reference this TikTok video um, that I think captures this sentiment perfectly. It's uh, a young millennial that walks into an AMC and the cashier asks him, does he need anything? And he says, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm just checking on the feeders. And the cashier looks back and he says, well, what, do you work here? And his answer is, no, but I'm a part owner or I'm, I'm, one of, I'm the money, he says. And I think that that sentiment is... is it's hilarious, um, and in, a, in an entertaining way, it really depicts what's going on here. You have these investors, and a lot of them, they're popping on uh, 
threads and they're talking about experiences at AMC or wanting to save AMC. There's some personal connection um, that we're seeing here. And you saw that, too, with a company like Hertz uh, when people were jumping into that name and they recognized the brand. They recognized the name. Some of these meme stocks, they have that similarity, that similar thread running through where there are people that have engaged with these companies. And I just want to mention uh, for our Bloomberg uh, audience that's watching us on YouTube, we were just playing the video and and this individual that you're talking about was kind of was playing both roles of, uh, you know, the investor as well as uh, the popcorn or or the theater uh, worker as well. But it's, you know, Joel, we're in a different world here. Well, what I love about it is like it, it, it kind of can inspire uh, those of us who maybe don't own AMC to like, I, I'm just going to look through my portfolio this weekend and decide, you know, what, what am I a part owner of that I'm going to go kind of like show up and right. say I'm a part owner of. Um, but, but it, you know, in seriousness, Kat, um, like I'm, I'm drawn to this idea that there is a change in even what it means to be a CEO because of this. And that, you know, you we could potentially see you know, executives interacting with with investors, small time investors, in a, in a completely different way going forward. Is, do you feel like there's is this um, sort of a canary in the coal mine? Are we going to see more stuff like this going forward? It's a great question and something that we're definitely tracking because we haven't had any moment in time to compare it to. This is such a unique. Um, these are unique circumstances that are popping up because of everything that's come before. So you have the pandemic, people at home, people engaging on social media. I think social media, that social media was there even beforehand, but this is like a, a, an extreme. This is kind of the next level. And I think that we're, we're going to see if a free popcorn or these incentives if there are other companies that might offer, I don't know, a free T-shirt or um, a visit to a location, if it's a retailer or or an experience, um, I, it's it's definitely an interesting trend that's be- trend that's becoming more and more popular. I gotta say, in the normal times, <laughs> I've I frequent AMC, not not infrequently, <laughs> like, and I have to also say that like it's just not that good of an experience. <laughs> the, the popcorn's not that good. <laughs> I don't see myself wearing an AMC shirt, but you know, like one man's view, compare, one man's view. I know one man's view, <laughs> especially when you compare it to like the Alamo that I go to in Brooklyn. It's just like a completely different experience. So, like, I, I get all of it, and I think it also just does speak to like the moment of of people being so cooped up for for a year that even AMC starts to sound good, right, Carol? I mean, like, yeah, Carol, are you totally. going to AMC this weekend? Uh, that's a no. Cat, <laughs> okay. are you going? I well, it's look. If I'm trying to, escape, you might have some reporting to do, Kat. <laughs> I know. Well, the point is, though, this story isn't over, and like that's the thing. As we watch the gyrations on a sometimes hourly basis in this stock, I mean, the swing alone yesterday was crazy. Um, Kat, we have to remember that this story isn't over yet. Just quickly, it it definitely is not. And I was, <laughs> I um, have woke up every single morning um, and. I know when there's some sort of when there's an active story going on, I can judge it by my inbox. And because of AMC, I have just I know every single time my alarm goes off. Well, here we go again. And it's 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 it seems like the same story, but it's not. It's just the development. Um, and it's one that we'll continue to follow really closely going ahead. Not a se- not a sequel. It's a remake. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
All right, great stuff. Uh, great reporting and a great read. Joel, thanks so much. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the Remote Access from Brooklyn. Have a great weekend. Kat, you too. Kat Doherty, she's our high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Boston. I just tweeted out her story. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Obviously, one of our top stories on this Friday, it's a jobs Friday. You know that. Uh, And U.S. job growth accelerated in the month of May. The unemployment rate fell, signaling firms are making some progress, filling a record number of openings as the economy powers up. Let's get more on U.S. employment trends. Richard Walquist is president and CEO of the American Staffing Association's trade group representing uh, staffing, recruiting companies and the like. He joins us on the phone from Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, Richard, nice to have you here. How are you? Doing very well, Carol. Thanks for having me. Well, how do you see uh, the job market right now in the United States? Well, today's numbers were very encouraging, but I think that uh, it also reaffirmed the fact that uh, the labor market is yet to be fully vaccinated. Uh, We've got a long way to go to meet demand, and COVID continues to impact labor supply. Uh, Our members uh, tell us our data shows, and I think that the BLS data also reflects the fact that it's not so much that we've got a job shortage anymore. Uh, There's an employee shortage, and we've got too many people on the sidelines. Well, that's interesting. So how do you, how do we get them back? Uh, And is it, you know, we've talked about the reasons why a lot of it is people are still nervous. Uh, There are people who aren't vaccinated. There are also people who still have kids out of school, and it's just difficult for them to go back to work. Um, What are the reasons, though, that you're seeing as to why uh, there isn't the supply to meet the demand? Well, you, you've hit on a couple of the, the key reasons, Carol. And in addition to that, uh, there is a, a, a sense of, of, of employees in the United States that it may not be safe for them to go back to work. Um, there is a trust issue in the United States, and we see it that it refers to institutions, it refers to uh, uh, employers, and uh, certainly around something like a novel COVID virus. Uh, one of our recent surveys indicated that 54% of U.S. adults indicate that they, they still see barriers to returning to physical work. And uh, it is a, a big concern about catching COVID in the workplace. As vaccination rates go up, though, things are really going to change. As schools reopen, I think in the fall, Carol, things are going to change. Um, but we've got we've to get down that final mile. And uh, right now we've got a large percentage of the American population that has yet to get vaccinated. And many of them are saying they're not sure they're going to get vaccinated. Is this true, kind of agnostic across all industries? Or are you just seeing it? Because, you know, the jobs numbers show that a lot of people are going back to hospitality. Uh, we did see some shortages when it came to construction, but that could have been supply constraints because of uh, materials. But what are you seeing among your members in different industries? It, it, it is really across the board. And uh, just, just like COVID was an equal opportunity pandemic, uh, we are seeing equal, equal opportunity increases in demand. A couple of the sectors that were the slowest of coming back, certainly leisure and hospitality, as, uh, as the strictures put in place by the federal government and the states and uh, the cities have, have opened up, uh, now the biggest challenge is, is ramping up, and especially as we get into the summer holiday season. But we're seeing it uh, across the board. The industries that had the shortest supply of available skilled talent going into COVID are still finding that uh, they're having a tough time recruiting. So healthcare services, doctors, nurses, 
nurses, advanced clinicians, therapists, uh, across manufacturing and construction, skilled trades. Oh, there is such a demand, Carol, for uh, people in skilled trades, electricians, carpenters, machinists, mechanics, welders, plumbers. And these are good-paying jobs, and they've got good career paths. Um, but uh, continue to have challenges in transportation, warehousing, logistics. Uh, you can just kind of uh, throw a dart at the wall uh, mm-hmm. in terms of an occupational uh, scatter map, and you're going to find that there are opportunities. And a couple of things that are really hot uh, hey, continue well, to be IT, web uh, software development, and everything related to cybersecurity. Well, and one of the things that we saw that um, average hourly earnings went up a little bit. So we've been watching that in particular. What are your members saying? Are they having to kind of maybe pay a little bit more to get workers because there is that um, imbalance between incredible demand for workers but not the supply being there? They are looking uh, to use every arrow in uh, their quiver. and they're, So they're working with their clients. And they say, look, we have done everything we possibly can do to try to get the talent you need. We are competing against uh, your competition, against all other employers. And absolutely, one of the first-level uh, strategies is to increase wages. And I know that there are concerns about uh, is this going to be inflationary. But right now we've got work that needs to get done. It's actually could be a headwind on GDP uh, continuing to uh, grow and increase. Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, wages uh, are increasing, and I expect that that's going to continue. What about hybrid workers? Are you seeing an increasing amount of companies or members say um, it's okay to do hybrid working? And I wonder if more companies came out and said, listen, folks, we'll work with you. You want to stay at home? That's fine, but we just need you to work. I think you put your finger on the number one challenge of employers all over the world. They had no playbook. Uh, we, many of us had playbooks for disaster planning and disaster recovery. Nothing like this where workers have been uh, working largely remote or 100% remote for 15-plus months. And, yeah, now employees are saying, uh, we want to come back to work, but we really don't want to be back at work, and probably not five days a week. And so, yes, I expect that uh, the standard is going to be some form of hybrid work. And right now, employers are trying to figure it out. We saw data coming out of McKinsey just last week that indicated that there were only 11% of executives who were interviewed that said that their companies had actually designed and implemented their return to work, their temporary, uh, uh, their full-time work policy, their telecommuting policies. So only 11%. And this is the kind of thing that that? employees are looking for. What's everybody waiting for? I just got about 30 seconds here, but what I, I do think I like I like to ask a question, get an answer. I like clarity, but what's everybody waiting for? Are they just looking at their competitors to see what they're doing? There's no guidance uh, around something like this, and they're trying to strike the balance, Carol, between uh, what they think has worked in the past in terms of being able to build strong competitive companies and the desires and the wants and the needs and the concerns of employees. So many of the firms have actually done polls of employees and said, yeah. you know, how do you feel about coming back to work? When you get the results, you're kind of stuck with them. And so they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what the balance ought to be. I right. think that it's going to be a hybrid solution. All right. Going to leave it there. Hey, great to check in with you. Richard Walquest. He's president and CEO of the American Staffing Association on the phone from Virginia. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. It is time for the drive to the close. Just about 10 and a half minutes left in the trading session. Getting ready to wrap up that Friday trade as well as the week overall. Let's get to it with Ryan Dietrich. He's chief market strategist at LPL Financial. He is with us once again on the phone in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, Ryan, it's been certainly an interesting week here. How did you see the jobs report? Some reporting saying it was a little bit of a Goldilocks report in that, yep, we saw job creation, but for the second month in a row, we missed the estimates. Uh, and it's a reminder that we still have also millions who are out of work. Yeah, you're right, Carol. First off, thanks for having me back. But it is kind of a Goldilocks scenario. That was the word I think we're all using where, mm-hmm. you know, hey, we made over, you know, six close to 600,000 jobs, and but it still it still missed the mark, right? So it's like, okay, what has the Fed been telling us, right? The Fed said they're in, the inflation's transitory, but they're not going to start to do anything until we start to see the employment picture come, come back. And we're, you know, we're still by, what, 8 million jobs away, I guess, from the peak pre-pandemic. So the truth of the matter is the economy is improving. Employment's not perfect, but the Fed is still a backstop. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, as we, you and I speak here, the S&P is about, well, it is right at an all-time high, literally at an all-time high right now. We'll see if we close there. Right. But really, stocks like this. Mm-hmm. We're 4232. Right yeah, yeah 4232 yeah. would be a new high if we actually close there today. And we have seen an uptick right. in the last uh, few hours, um, you know, or not even, I feel like the last uh, few minutes here. So how do, you know, once again, the mega tech uh, are back in leading the equity markets higher. Is that where you want to be? Yeah, well, they are today. And honestly, you know, I come on to you about once a month for a while saying, you know, we we don't think so. We think, you know, the value trade is where you want to be, your industrials, your materials, your financials, as the economy opens up. And I'm aware tech's doing well today. And that doesn't mean tech can't keep going up or the NASDAQ keep, can't keep going up, but just on a relative basis, the last several months, we've seen that underperformance. So we think today, or maybe even a little bit of a blip, but we still think the cyclical value is where you want to be. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the all-time high, right? So mm-hmm. here's a neat stat for you. Ten days in a row now, we have been within 2% of an all-time high, but not made an all-time high. Now, today could be day 11, depending if we don't close an all-time high. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's that old saying, you know, don't short a dull market. We've been having, honestly, a really dull market here as we flirt with all-time highs. So that's just something I think people need to uh, remember. Hey, what do you make of, uh, we had a headline uh, about 3 o'clock or a little bit, about 10 after 3 Wall Street time, Wall Street banks reigning in hedge fund short bets and some of those meme stocks. So maybe complicating uh, hedge funds and some institutional investors, their ability to take short positions on some of these uh, stocks, whether it's an AMC or or GameStop or, or others that are coming to light. How might that impact the trade in some of those stocks, in your view? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. And I'll tell you this much. When when you look at what's going on with the AMC, for instance, right? I mean, I saw the other day that it's up to 18% of some of the small cap ETFs, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the Russell 2000, AMC and GameStop, they like dominate it. So you're getting these huge swings in small caps because a couple stocks are moving. So that's something that investors really need to be aware of. We actually like small caps. We, we think small caps are Well, there's going to be a reconstitution, or Dave Wilson year. was just talking about that. There's going to be a right. reconstitution. So some of these uh, formerly small cap stay. Uh, names are, are going to be <laughs> moved out from, you know, maybe the Russell 2000 into the Russell 1000. So that will shift some of that. 
Yeah, it will shift some of it, but we're living with it now. And I guess the truth mm. is we do think in general small caps are still the early cycle reopening play. And they, they had a huge fourth quarter, like a record fourth quarter. Now they've kind of just you know consolidated almost all year, honestly. We think small caps can break out and do pretty well relative to large caps still. That theme I kind of talked about earlier, the reopening. Theme. You guys generally think that you wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, stocks took a well-deserved break in June. Does that mean just kind of treading water? Or do we see mm-hmm. some of our guests have come on and actually talked about a little bit of a correction? Yeah, we'd say more treading water, honestly, kind of like what we've been doing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you look at, like, I know you like talking about technicals. Here's one for you. So the markets are kind of going sideways. But if you look at the number of stocks making new monthly highs, number of stocks making new three-month highs, six-month highs, there's some deterioration in there. Nothing major, nothing that has us extremely concerned. Just saying, you know, we're not quite getting the broad participation. Uh, we are today, honestly, but before today, we haven't been getting that broad participation, which simply says maybe, again, after an 89% rally, uh, we can consolidate. That's truly what markets have been doing for, for a while now. We can continue into the, uh, the summer months, really. Yeah. How much are you watching kind of what happens in this first half of the year, you know, once we get through the month of June and what it maybe tells us about what comes in the second half of the year? Is it market dri- driven? Is it fundamental driven? Is it economic news driven? Is it Fed news driven? Is it all of the above? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you just nailed it. It's a little bit all of the above. I mean, all those things are things we're paying attention to, but we just did a study. We just had the 100th day of the trade, trading day um, last week, 100th trading day of the year. Yep. And when you're up 10% for the year, Carol, like we just were this year, right. the rest of the year's up 84, I'm sorry, 84% of the time it's higher, up about 9% on average. Compare that with your average year, the rest of the year, up 70% of the time, up about 5% on average. Long way of saying, a good start to a year is usually pretty good the rest of the year. 13 and 19 were the last two years we had a good start like this. And as we remember, those are two years, the second half of the year, you probably didn't want to uh, be avoiding stocks. Stocks continue to outperform bonds, and we think that'll be the case again when all is said and done in 2021. Right, but it doesn't necessarily mean we move much from here, correct? Or we could see some volatility where you see some pullbacks and maybe move back up to existing levels or pre- previous highs. Yeah. Exactly. That's where it kind of goes down to the second level, right? You look at something like energy. I mean, energy is still only, what, about 3% of the S&P 500. It's had this huge rally, so that's a group that's actually done really well lately, whereas the market, as everyone says, look at the Dow, the S&P has gone sideways. So if you dig under the surface a little bit, there can be opportunities. But for people just looking at the big, big picture, S&P 500, yes, sideways makes sense. But under the surface, the cyclical value really are still doing well and still continue to lead in our view. What does it tell you when both stocks and bonds go up? We did see yields back off today. Day. Yeah. Uh, the, yield, oh, yeah. the, the Treasury market really told you something today. Uh, right now, that 10-year note at 155. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a little bit of a surprise. I mean, most people, including us, are looking for a higher 10-year yield. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be something if Mr. Market throws the curveball. And you know what? Look at gold. Gold's up a percent, too. So, you know, we've got everything just about up today, from metals to the stocks to the bonds. For one day blip, we're not overly concerned. It seems like Fed days and jobs days, you get these weird, weird things that kind of happen, and that's the case once again. But still, stocks are outperforming bonds even on the upside, and that's something we, we still think would be the case. You do okay. So, do you have what's the exposure though to the fixed income world in, in your view right now? Yeah, well, we've got different models. Is it none so or it, yeah? Yeah. No, no, no. If you have a 60-40 portfolio, we'd say about 35% bonds, 65% stocks. We're overweight stocks relative to bonds in our in our core average portfolio. All right. Interesting. And would you still, though, you mentioned, you know, we talked about just to kind of wrap it up here, the big mega tech companies uh, have some exposure, but that's not where you see the real momentum uh, going maybe in the next year or so. That's exactly right. They're still great earnings, still solid fundamentals. They've just had a great run. They might, you know, go with the market. Even We're even weight technology here. We just think there's a little more opportunity in the industrials, materials and financials. 
sell in May, sell in June? <laughs> exactly right. I mean, May's been higher. <laughs> oh, I think it's like eight of the last nine years now. So, yeah, let's sell in June. So, oh, true, so far, right? we're not selling in June yet. <laughs> you know what, Carol? It is the last 10 days of June historically, and this is just historically. Yeah. Historically, the last 10 days of June are very weak. First half's not too bad usually. So, All we'll right. see if it plays out again here. All right, going to leave it there. Hey, listen, uh, Ryan, have a good weekend. Really appreciate it. Ryan Dietrich, he's Chief Market Strategist over at LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.